And so what I learned from the Swami is that the ancient Swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and spiritual teachers of all varieties didn't use these techniques to unclog their arteries or you know, perform better in sports or whatever, even though it can help you do all those things. They're really profound tools for quieting down our mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being and to realize that that's our natural state, that these techniques didn't bring that sense of peace and well-being to us. That's who we are. And it's the opposite of what we've been, most of us raised, that we have to get that from outside of ourselves. It's rather, it's there already until we disturb it. So then the question becomes, radically shifts from how can I get more of what I think I need to be happy and healthy to what am I doing that's disturbing my own inner sense of peace and well-being? I can, I can empower, I'm empowered when I have that realization because I can do something about that. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full Podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades, but since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets and without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Dr. Dean Ornish. This interview is a repost of an interview I did with Dr. Dean two years ago for the Reclaim Your Body Summit. I wanted to share this interview now because as we emerge from a long year in quarantine, we are more desperate now for connection than ever. And Dr. Dean goes into the power and the impact connection has on our health. Dean teaches the power connection has to heal and how isolation can not only cause pain and loneliness, but even disease. Dean trained in internal medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine, the Harvard Medical School, and the Massachusetts General Hospital, and has been practicing medicine for over 40 years. He's the author of six best-selling books. His latest book is called Undo It. That's right, undo like the undo button. Dean helped former President Clinton go plant-based after his heart surgery and was appointed by President Obama as a White House advisory group on prevention and integrative public health. In this conversation, we talk about Dean's approach to disease. His theory is that these diseases, whether that heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, whatever it is, that the root is always the same. And the disease is just manifesting in different forms because he believes that all of these diseases carry the same biological mechanisms. And these mechanisms in our bodies are influenced by four pillars, our stress levels, what we eat, how much we move, and how much love and support we have in our lives. Another thing we discussed in this interview is how we use the pain in our lives by paying attention to what the pain may be saying and being curious and viewing the pain as the teacher as opposed to a punishment that needs to be removed or numbed. I hope you enjoy this interview, and I apologize ahead of time for the obvious newbie mistakes I was making a couple of years ago. This is actually one of the first interviews I ever recorded, and the audio just didn't come out to Claris, but I think the content is worth the listen. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for joining, and let's jump right in. Dr. Dean, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I'm really curious what keeps you so passionate. You've obviously accomplished so many things over the last 40 years and have made such a difference in people's lives. What motivates you to continue going? Oh, well, it's a really good question, one that I don't often get asked. And it's really about, I've found nothing in life more powerful and more meaningful than doing studies that can really empower people with new hope and new choices about things that they had lost hope with. You know, over the last 40 years, we were able to show that simple changes in diet and lifestyle, eat well, move more, stress less, love more, can actually not only help prevent, but actually reverse 
the progression of the most common chronic diseases. We showed for the first time that heart disease was reversible. And for someone who has such bad heart disease that they can't you know, walk across the street without getting severe chest pain or make love with their spouse without getting pain or play with their kids or go back to work without getting pain. And within a few weeks, they can, they're essentially pain-free and can do all of those things. You know, that really makes, it's what gets me out of bed every day. You know, we have now several patients who had such bad heart disease that they were told that they needed a heart transplant, one of whom I uh, described in our new book. And while waiting for a donor, they went through, this guy who's a doctor himself went through our program for reversing heart disease at UCLA, which Medicare and other insurance companies are now paying for. And he improved so much in just nine weeks, he didn't need a heart transplant anymore. It's like, what's the more radical intervention here? A heart transplant or, you know, changing your lifestyle. And we've found that these same lifestyle changes that can reverse heart disease, could reverse high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, could um, the average person lost 24 pounds in the first year and they kept half that weight off five years later even though they were eating more food and more frequently than they had before because the food is so much less dense in calories. We found these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, and even reverse the progression of men with early-stage prostate cancer and likely women with early, many women with early-stage breast cancer. We found that these same, when you change your lifestyle, that changes your genes. We published a, a study with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome, and we found that over 500 genes were changed in just three months, turning on the genes that keep us healthy, turning off the genes that cause us to get sick within just, you know, just within three months. We did a study with Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn where we found these same lifestyle changes could lengthen telomeres. She got the Nobel Prize for discovering that telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes that regulate how long we live. And as we get older, our telomeres get shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter. And the risk of premature death from pretty much everything goes up correspondingly. And we found for the first time we could actually lengthen them. And as when the Lancet sent out a press release around this. They called it reversing aging at a cellular level. And so the more diseases we study and the more underlying mechanisms we, we uh, do research on, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful, how quickly you can feel better, and how what you gain is so much more than what you give up, and, and how meaningful that is for people. And so for me, knowing that we're giving literally millions of people new hope and new choices is exciting. In fact, we're now doing the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes may be able to reverse the progression of men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. We're still recruiting patients, so if anyone lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's all offered for free to the people in our study. Go to our website, which is uh, ornish.com, and, and click on that, and we'll send you information on it. Now, it's a good question, and I present a new unifying theory in this book, uh, which is a little radical, which is that, you know, like all doctors, I was trained to view each of these diseases being very different from each other, that heart disease is very different than diabetes or prostate cancer or whatever. But the theory is that they're really the same disease manifesting in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome and telomeres and gene expression and so on. And each one of these mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And so it helps explain why, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, so many people are thinking that everything has to be tailored and personalized. But, you know, we found that in all of our 40 years of, of research published in all the leading peer-reviewed medical and scientific journals and so on, that these same lifestyle changes could prevent or reverse all of these different conditions because they all share the same underlying mechanisms. It also helps explain 
why so many people have more than one of these diseases at the same time. You know, people who have high blood pressure and high cholesterol and they're overweight and they have heart disease because they're the same mechanism that are just expressing themselves in different forms. And why whole countries like in Asia 50 or 60 years ago had very low rates of these chronic diseases, even though they had the same genetic predisposition as we have in this country, because they were all eating basically a, a low-fat, whole-foods, plant-based diet. They're exercising. They had strong social ties. They didn't have the kind of chronic emotional stress that we have in our country now. But as time went by and they started to eat like us and live like us, now they're all too often dying like us, and their rates of these chronic diseases are skyrocketing in the same way. And so it's a way for readers to understand that these are very simple changes that can have very powerful impacts and that what you gain is so much more than what you give up and how quickly you can feel better in ways we can actually measure now. In fact, you know, if you've ever been to the United Kingdom and changing planes in Heathrow and you see them in the duty-free shops, these big cartons of cigarettes, and they have these pictures of people with half their faces removed or tracheotomy. It can just make it really scary and gross enough that maybe you won't smoke. Fear is a very powerful motivator, but only for like a month or six weeks. You know, when someone's had a, a trip to the emergency room or a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything the doctor says for like a month or so, and then they stop doing it in most cases because it's hard to sustain fear. And we're seeing that in the political arena now as well because, you know, we all know we're going to die, but who wants to think about that? So we don't. So I've just found that fear-based approaches are not sustainable for most people. I, I would get into friendly discussions with Al Gore years ago about global warming that, you know, if you tell people that, you know, we're all going to die in 10 years, then people just tune out. It's too scary to think about. If you say, you know, a single meal that's high in, in fat and animal protein causes erectile dysfunction, uh, uh, that, that gets people's attention more, puts it into the here and now. And because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make these changes in lifestyle, instead of doing it out of fear of dying, you do it for joy and pleasure and love and meaning and feeling good, which really are sustainable. And because these mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make big changes in lifestyle, most people feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening, which is not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and meaning and feeling good, which are. I mean, for example, someone with bad heart disease who can't you know, walk across the street without getting severe chest pain or can't make love with their spouse without pain or play with their kids without pain or go back to work without pain and within usually a few weeks, they're essentially pain-free. They say things like, oh, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So let me do more of this and less of that. And it comes out of their own experience, not because some book or some doctor told them, but because they say, oh, okay, I get it. I, uh, you know, These are choices worth making. Yeah, I'll probably live longer, but telling somebody who's lonely and depressed they're going to live longer isn't really that motivating anyway. It's really about feeling. And you can feel so much better so quickly, it really makes it sustainable. I guess my question that comes to mind is, so you say it makes it sustainable, right? And, um, and I believe that anybody can make a quick, you know, someone can do something for four or six weeks and they'll see immediate relief and they're going to start feeling better. But how do you help somebody see that, that they need to stay attached to the motivation of the joy of the happiness of the connection? Because it's so easy to fall back into the old patterns of the old emotional patterns of your surroundings, marketing or going to the grocery store and just seeing, you know, things with that seem delicious to you that you've loved for the last 20 years like how do you help someone stay attached to you know the way they want to live and the way they want to feel right well in several ways first of all, i've learned that even more than being healthy people want to feel free and in control and as soon yeah. as i tell somebody eat this don't eat that do this don't do that they cringe and they generally want to do just the opposite and then 
Right. This goes back to the first dietary intervention, you know, when God said, don't eat the apple and that didn't go so well, that was God talking. So we're not going to do better than that. And so I learned that instead of saying, you know, and, and the whole language of behavioral change, as you know, from your experiences, has this kind of moralistic, fascist kind of finger wagging, you know, bad, bad, bad. And don't, eat that, don't eat that. Exactly. And as soon as you call foods good or bad, it's a very small step to saying I'm a bad person because I eat bad food. And then if you're a bad person, then might as well finish the pot of ice cream or the burger because you're a bad person, right? And, and, the shame, and then the shame kicks in as soon as you feel like you're bad. That's right. You know, shame, shame is embarrassing. You just double down on being bad. Like, I'm bad already, right? Might as well just go all out. Precisely. And shame and guilt and anger and humiliation are among the most toxic emotions for our health. So I wrote a book years ago called The Spectrum that was based on the finding of all those studies that the more you change, the more you improve at any age. So if you're trying to just lose a few pounds or get your weight or cholesterol or blood pressure down, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you failed or you're bad, just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. The consistency is actually more important than the duration. So it's how you judge your success then. It's how you measure your success. So if you measure your success by having an hour workout, then you're going to feel ashamed and miserable. But if you've met yourself by just going to the gym, even for five minutes, That's even, right. even walking into the gym and doing nothing, just the fact that you went to gym. Exactly. Or like, buy a portable phone and walk around your office when you're having phone conversations. You can build this into your daily life, you know. But the overall trajectory of what you're doing is what matters. Now, if you're trying to reverse a life-threatening illness like heart disease or something like that, that's more the pound of cure than the ounce of prevention. It really does take big changes to reverse something. Right. That's why we were the first to prove all these things were reversible is that people didn't go far enough. But the paradox is that sometimes it's actually easier to make big changes than small ones because the bigger the change, the bigger, the better you feel. Right. Again, if you have heart disease and you can't make love with your spouse or play with your kids or go back to work and within a few weeks you can do all those things, then you say, well, I, can, I like eating junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. And so I think both strategies can be helpful. And by, by the way, we've also learned that information is important, but it's not usually sufficient to motivate most people to change. I mean, we're drowning in information. With Google, you search a million articles in a fraction of a second. And it's not like I tell somebody who smokes, hey, you know, I really want you to quit smoking. It's bad for you. And they go, I didn't know that. I'll quit today. You know, it's everybody knows it's bad for you. So I've, you know, the, the overarching theme of all of the work that Ann and I have been doing for these many years is, to, is a very simple, radical question, which is what's really the cause of this, rather than just treating the symptoms. And, you know, the cause for so many people is that they're lonely and depressed because 50 years ago, we had a sense of greater connection and community. It was a, you know, an extended family that you would see regularly or a neighborhood with two or three generations of people that you grew up with or a, a job that felt secure that you've been at for a decade or more where you got to really know your coworkers or a a church or a synagogue or a club that you went to regularly. And many people today don't have any of those things. And what we're learning is that study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed, which I think is the real epidemic now, are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely for pretty much everything when compared to those who have a strong sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that big an impact. And so telling somebody who's lonely and depressed that they're going to live longer if they just change their lifestyle isn't that motivating. So I have gotten in the habit of asking people, you know, why do you want to live long? And people go, gosh, no one's ever asked me that before. Like, well, I don't know. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to make love with my spouse. I want to play with my uh, friends. I want to write a book, whatever it happens to be. And then if you can get people in touch with that sense of meaning, then they're 
much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. And so part of the value of research and science is to raise awareness of how much these things really make a difference. And when you realize that the time that we spend with our friends and family isn't just a luxury that you do after you've done all the important stuff, that it is the important stuff, then we can reprioritize our time and spend more time with the people that we care about. And by doing so, it becomes one of the most powerful things we can do for our health. Now, on the other hand, you know, living here in the Bay Area, you know, there are two and a half billion people on Facebook. And yet one of the studies I quote in our new book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, actually they found the more depressed you are. And why is that? Because it's not an authentic intimacy. Intimacy is really healing. You know, the word even healing comes from the root to make whole and yoga from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas. But in Facebook, it looks like everybody has this perfect life but you, you know, because people don't post their demons and their dark side and their failures and so on. But if you grow up in an extended family or with neighborhood, two or three generations of people in the same neighborhood, they know you. They, they see you. It's not just your bio sketch and your Facebook profile. They know where you messed up and you know that they know and they know that you know that they know. and They're still there for you. There's just something really primal about being authentic with people and having and being seen warts and all, and they're still being there for you. And so in our support groups, which is the love more part of our program, we try to create an environment where people can feel safe, you know, let down their emotional defenses and connect authentically and deeply with people. I think we're really hungry for that sense of authenticity. And so um, it's really the part of our program that people know the, and everyone goes right to the diet, which is important, but the other part is really what I think is at least as important, and it's what enables people to make sustainable changes. Because as you found out in your own life, that if you just focus on the behaviors through sheer force of will, you can make yourself do something or not do something for some period of time, but then you tend to go back to where you were before because you're not really addressing the underlying cause. But when we help people use meditation, for example, to quiet down their mind and experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, then we find they're much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you, you made a lot of good points there, and I have two questions for you. So the first question is, you have people that are you know, stuck in these patterns right, of our lives, the way we interact with the people in our lives, the way we you know, interact with our friends and our family, whether it's a FaceTime or a call or a WhatsApp or a text message or Facebook, right? like you said. How do you actually give people like to stop the pattern to to get more connected, right? So it's like it's easy to say spend more time with your family, right? But what's the real like? You know, it's like connect with your friends in a deeper way. That means you have to go out of your comfort zone to go to somewhere local, to go to a local class or a, you know or yeah. a lunch. You have to actually take these steps to put yourself out there. And I yeah. think that's a lot of that's a lot of like psychology, right? The behavior psychology behind that. What motivates people and how do you break a pattern? So. Are there any, anything that you've noticed that really works with your patients that has helped them break that pattern? Yeah, it's helping them make the connected dots between when they suffer and why. And then the suffering becomes the, the teacher, not the punishment. And it becomes the catalyst. Because, mm -hmm. you know, change is hard, as you've indicated. But if you're hurting enough, it's like, wow, yeah, I don't know, that's going to be hard for me to, you know, change my diet and exercise and meditate and spend more time with people and meeting them and more time with my friends and family all at once. Wow, I don't know. But boy, I'm in so much pain. Let me try this weird stuff because the science has proven that it works. And then when they try it and they start to feel so much better and they literally connect the dots between what they do and how they feel for better and for worse, then they often say things like, you know, that pain was really a, a lifesaver for me. Having a 
the first time I heard of someone say, you know, having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me. The first time I heard, it, I said, what are you nuts? And they say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes that have transformed my life to such a degree that I might not have done so otherwise. I had a spiritual teacher that I studied with for 40 years named Swami Satchidananda, who liked to make puns, by the way. And people say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo, which is part of the reason why I call the Voka undo it, besides the obvious reference to uh, the just do it. Oh, that's and, great. Is he, still, is he still around? No, he passed about 10 years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And, and, you know, my favorite key on the computer has always been the undo button. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a, an undo button in our lives? And, and now we do. Part of what I learned from the Swami, he'd say, like, imagine I'm giving you a hot frying pan and you're holding on to it. Are you going to let go of it? You, you say, well, should I let go of this or not? I wonder if I should let go of this. You know, or you're just like, wow, <laughs> that hurts. Let me let go of it. And that's part of the value of pain is to get our attention. But as a doctor, I was trained really to try to view pain as something to get rid of as quickly as possible, to numb it, you know, with narcotics or opioids or whatever. And that's part of what I've learned is, you know, we have an opioid epidemic now, but we have uh, lots of epidemics. People are fatter than ever. They're, they're unhappier than ever. They're more depressed than ever, you know. And so I'd ask patients in our studies, you know, like, why do you do all these things that seem so maladaptive to me? Why do you smoke and overeat and drink too much and work too hard and play too many video games? And and all these things. And they say, you don't get it, Dean. You don't have a clue. These behaviors aren't maladaptive. They're, they're very adaptive because they help us deal with our loneliness, our pain, our depression. I've had patients say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or, you know, when I get depressed, I eat a lot of fat. It coats my nerves and numbs the pain or that food fills the void or video games numb the pain. They distract me or opioids or alcohol or other drugs numb the pain or working all the time uh, is another more socially acceptable way of distracting yourself from your pain. But again, the pain isn't the problem. The pain's the messenger. It's saying, hey, Dean, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And then when we can actually listen to it and then use that as a catalyst for transformation, then the pain begins the teacher rather than the, 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 the punishment or something right. that needs to be killed or numbed or bypassed. The struggle is actually pinpointing what, how you're numbing your pain, right? Like I know myself when I'm feeling emotions I, don't, I can't process or emotions that are difficult for me to process, immediately I'm trying to numb it. Even if I'm eating healthy, like I can sometimes numb it with cucumbers, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's a healthy, I, I look at it like, wow, I'm eating so healthy, but I know right. I'm binging on, you know, four big cucumbers. I don't need to be eating that. All I'm doing is, you know, numbing whatever I'm feeling. Yeah. And it, it, are there some methods that you've noticed that work really well to not, to catch yourself in the pain, notice it as a messenger and do something else instead in that place of whether it's overworking or eating or smoking or drinking? Yeah, well, uh, paying attention is a really important part of it. And meditation is just really the practice of paying attention. And so you right. get better and better at doing that. And so like when you eat something, eat with awareness. So, I mean, I, we've all had the experience of eating like while watching a TV show or movie and like say a bag of popcorn, it's like you're yep. Looking at the thing, you're like, oh my God, it's all gone. You know, so you got all the calories and not much of the pleasure, if any. Whereas if you really pay attention, my wife Anne had this beautiful meditation called Eating with Ecstasy. And we'll take it was based on John Kabat Zinn's earlier work on mindfulness, where you take like a a little treat, like for me, it would be a piece of dark chocolate, or for someone else, it might be, you know, a, a strawberry or whatever. And just, you know, smell it and look at it, involve your five senses, and then put it in your mouth like a small piece of really high quality dark chocolate and let it, let it melt there and notice how 
the flavors change as it hits different parts of your tongue and your palate and your throat and uh, almost like harmonics. And, uh, you know, you can spend five minutes on a piece of chocolate and it's exquisitely pleasurable. Yeah. And, you know, much more pleasure and very few calories by doing that. But if you bring that awareness to other parts of your life, you know, whether it's food or sex or music or art or massage or anything sensual, when you really pay attention to it, you get a lot more pleasure without the excessive amounts that can create problems, like too much food, you know, for example. The other is to say, you know, why am I feeling this way? And so we take that a step further in our new book, which again is part of what I learned from the Swami, which is that we tend to think that, you know, our whole culture, particularly the advertising industry that you alluded to earlier, teaches us that our health and our well-being and our peace of mind are out there somewhere. We, they, we have to get them, right? And then it's like, well, if only I had whatever that is, more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, you know, it varies from person to person, but however you fill in that blank, if only I had more blank, then I'd feel happy, then I'd feel peaceful, then uh, I'd be healthy, then, you know, uh, then people would love me and then everything would be good. Now, once you set up that view of the world, however it turns out, you generally feel bad because until you get it, you feel bad. If somebody else gets it and you don't, then you feel really bad. It makes you think, wow, we really do live in this hostile, zero-sum, competitive game. The more you get, the less there is for me. And if you don't get it, you feel bad. And even if you get it, it's really seductive because in the moment, it's like, oh, I got it. It's mine. Now I'm happy. But almost invariably, it's soon followed by either now what? It's never enough. I've had patients say things like, I... I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. Or so what? Big deal. It just doesn't provide that lasting sense of meaning. And so what I learned from the Swami is that the ancient Swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and spiritual teachers of all varieties didn't use these techniques to unclog their arteries or you know, perform better in sports or whatever, even though it can help you do all those things. They're really profound tools for quieting down our mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, and to realize that that's our natural state, that these techniques didn't bring that sense of peace and well-being to us. That's who we are. And it's the opposite of what we've been, most of us raised, that we have to get that from outside of ourselves. It's rather, it's there already until we disturb it. So then the question becomes, radically shifts from how can I get more of what I think I need to be happy and healthy, to what am I doing that's disturbing my own inner sense of peace and well-being? I can, I can empower, I'm empowered when I have that realization because I can do something about that. That's the question that we all need to be asking ourselves. How can we, how can we feel more of that sensation of happiness, like inner, inner joy? That's right. And what these techniques bring you is they quiet down our mind and body. So that after 15 or 20 or 30 minutes of meditation, you feel more peaceful. And to remind yourself, to remind yourself that those Techniques didn't bring that to you, but that rather temporarily you're no longer disturbing that. And then you think, okay, now I can go out in the world. And the paradox is you can often accomplish even more, but the intention or the motivation behind it is radically different. It's not because I need to get these things to be happy. I already have that. It's how can I be of service? How can I, you know, play with this? How can I help people? Because that really is fun and, and, and meaningful and, and joyful. And then it transforms the sense of pain from punishment to teach her, to get our attention, to raise our awareness. And then the other thing I've learned is that when you can quiet down your mind and body enough and experience that inner sense of peace and well-being, that it takes you to a transcendent state, ultimately, that on one level, we're separate. You know, you're you and I'm me, and we can enjoy having this conversation. But on another level, we're part of something larger that connects us all, that we're already interconnected with each other. There was a wonderful study that Nicholas Christakis did at Harvard where, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine of all places, 
that he found that if your friends are obese, you're 45% more likely to be obese yourself. If your friends' friends are obese, you're 25% more likely. And if your friends' friends' friends are obese, you're 10% more likely to be obese yourself. Even if you've never met them, you know, there are two people, two generations removed. Epigenetics? It's epigenetics. And I think it's just that we're already interconnected with each other. And all these great spiritual truths of love and compassion and forgiveness really come from that place that on one level we're separate, but on another level we're not. It's like in a movie, there's the, the movie screen that has all these great casts of characters, but there's the light behind the projector. And we're both of that. And to the degree we can have that double vision, then we can enjoy the drama without getting so caught in it and without disturbing the own, our own inner peace and our own inner health. And then finally, finally, at the end of a meditation, you can gain access to your still small voice within, your inner teacher, your inner Swami, for lack of a better word. And we all have that. It's the one that you know, often wakes us up in the middle of the night and says, hey, Dean, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. You can access that much more intentionally. And all of the studies I've done that I've directed over the last 40 years I've listened to that little voice and say, you know, this is going to work. And then I kind of reverse engineer to see how can I design a study to, to test that hypothesis or not. You say this is going to work. You mean something personally that you've noticed and like in that moment? Well, this, this, that, this study that we're going to do, but we can reverse heart disease or diabetes, or whatever. But on a more mundane day, day-to-day level, at the, every time I meditate, at the end of the meditation, when my mind is more quiet, I can hear that voice. I can access its wisdom and I can ask it, what am I not paying attention to that I need to pay attention to? And I just listen. And it's amazing what I can hear. And, I've, and when you get in the habit of doing that at the end of a meditation, then you can do that in the midst of your busy everyday life. And that intuitive wisdom is really powerful and uh, has been a real guiding principle. I've learned to trust that inner voice because it's, it's your, really your own inner, inner voice. And we all have that. Yeah, that's a great point that you're bringing up. Because I, I think about this a lot, listening to the inner voice. and. You know, sometimes you, you listen, you hear the inner voice tell you something, right? A clear message and you clear it light as day. <laughs> and then you start to try to understand how it makes sense, right? So it's, it's like jumping off the roof. Someone told you there's going to be a net that's going to catch you. And you have to assume that you can trust that person right. before you jump. And that's kind of like that intuitive voice to me. Do you actually try to like, you know, use your wisdom to be like, oh, well, you know, that intuitive voice said this, do this, you know, we, we can reverse heart disease. And I know because we have these studies that we've done, so I can go do it now. So how much are you using your intellect with to support your, your intuition? Or are you just running after the intuition on its own? No, no, it's a very good question. I appreciate the chance to clarify it. So the inner voice might say, like 40 years ago when we did our first study to reverse heart disease, heart disease can be reversed by changing lifestyle. I say, really? That's interesting. So then I went to these things called libraries, and they had these things called journals that you can't, you know, that's before everything was online. And I realized, okay, well, well, there's studies in dogs and cats and pigs and rabbits and monkeys that you can cause them to get heart disease if you put them under stress or make them smoke or don't let them exercise or, you know, put them on a high-fat animal protein diet. And you can reverse it if you change all those things. Uh, in countries where they tend to eat and live healthily, they don't get these conditions. When they start to eat like us and live like us, they start to die like us. So there's the animal studies, the epidemiological data, the anecdotal case reports, and then suddenly... There's a mosaic that comes and say, oh, looks like that little inner voice was right. And then we'll do a study and we'll say, okay, I've got my bias here, but I'm going to do this in a very rigorous way so that it's a randomized controlled trial. Other people are doing the testing. They're doing this, the data collection, the statistical analysis. So I'm removed from that. And then sure enough, it turned out to be true. The point is, is that we all have access to that inner wisdom. And it's not in conflict with our intellect. 
but it can often take us in directions that our intellect doesn't yet see by like it's it's like our, our own version of artificial intelligence. It can see the patterns that emerge before our, our our limited more limited minds can do that. And it's incredibly powerful information that I just have learned to trust and uh, almost invariably it turns out to be true. Wow, that's incredible that's incredible and very comforting because it's something I think about a lot, like how do you know when to go? And I guess it's listening, but also using using your experience and wisdom to prove the case that you're that you're after or prove the point that you're, you know, gather more data, so to speak, but go, go for it. And those- yeah, a lot of people didn't think in science, it's kind of this incremental right. progression and then it's a eureka. And it's really like you have the eureka moment and then you kind of reverse engineer to see. Right. In, in, in organic chemistry, there's an example that Kekulé was trying to understand the structure of benzene. And it turns out it's a six-sided ring and he had a dream of a snake swallowing its tail, which kind of created that benzene ring. And then he kind of, oh, okay, now I get it. It's just those moments of insight that can be so powerful. They're not in conflict with your intellect, but they, they give you another dimension, a more of a multidimensional perspective that can be incredibly powerful and creative. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. So, so I, how do you, do you, when you dream something, do you look at that as also like a download, so to speak, or some sort of, you, some sort of clear, intuitive clarity? Sometimes, but dreams can often just be your mind kind of detoxifying. Right. It's interesting. I found that it's much more reliable if I can, at the end of a meditation, when, when my mind is more quiet, to just kind of summon that inner voice and just say, hey, um, what am I not paying attention to that I need to listen to? And then just listen, and then it will generally tell me. Sometimes only in certain degrees, and then I have to keep going and say, well, tell me more about that, and tell me more about that. And it's like Chinese boxes in the Interesting. dialogue that is, uh, I've learned to really uh, trust and value. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I had a, you were in my dreams last night, funny enough. I was actually, th- I guess I was thinking about you yesterday, a lot about the interview. And yeah, it was great. I was like, wow, you're a great guy. And all the things that we were doing and having conversation was just awesome. And it was just really funny to think about when yeah. I woke up this morning, I was like, huh, you know, it's like, what, what, what merit do you give dreams and what merit do you not? And obviously I was thinking about it a lot. So naturally you dream about things you think about. So well, I'm glad it was a good dream. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you is about protein. I know you have a strong perspective about animal protein. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, as somebody who's been, you know, investigating food for myself, I'm always trying to think about like, you know, what's the healthiest way to eat, you know, and from what I understand, it's eggs, chicken breasts, you know, try to get, you know, free range and try to get healthier versions of everything you can, whatever you can afford. But from protein perspective, has been very healthy for me to actually lose you know, the 130 plus pounds that I've lost and to maintain it is by eating a lot of, a lot of animal protein. And I know, I, I, don't, I, I wonder, you know, I know your perspective is to not animal protein shouldn't be consumed in that amount probably that I'm consuming. And I'm, I'm really curious how you came up with that and like, where does that come from? And just overall the topic. Well, you know, I debated Dr. Atkins uh, many times before he died and his autopsy showed he died of heart disease. And that's the problem is you can lose weight by eating a lot of animal protein, but you often are mortgaging your health in the process. I mean, you can lose weight in lots of ways that aren't really good for you. I mean, chemotherapy is a good way to lose weight. You know, smoking cigarettes is a good way. Amphetamines, you know, there are lots of ways of losing weight that aren't really healthy. And so if you substitute animal protein for sugar and refined carbs, you're going to lose weight. But there are better things you can substitute. So I agree with Dr. Atkins and, you know, the paleo and keto and all these other diets are just Atkins redox. They're just the same thing in different forms for the most part. And the, the, the half truth that makes them so seductive is that most Americans eat way too many refined carbs like sugar, white flour, high fructose corn, corn syrup, and so on. And when you, then you get all these calories that don't fill you up and they get absorbed quickly into your blood. So your blood sugar spikes, your pancreas makes insulin to bring it back down. 
but the insulin causes chronic inflammation. It causes you to convert those calories into fat more efficiently and so on. And so, you know, I agree with Dr. Atkins and the acolytes that followed that Americans eat way too many uh, refined carbs and sugar, but you don't want to replace them with animal protein and pork rinds and bacon and sausage and so on, much as I would like to tell you those are health foods, they're not. Uh, you want to replace them with, with what are, you know, the so-called good carbs, you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products in their natural unrefined form are rich in fiber. And the fiber slows the rate of absorption from your gut into your blood so you don't get those wide swings in blood sugar that cause the insulin responses. You get more of a constant level throughout the day. And you're not getting the animal protein, which causes the chronic inflammation and the oxidative stress and these mechanisms that increase your risk of premature death by, from all causes by 75% and from prostate cancer, heart, uh, prostate colon and breast cancer and diabetes by four to 500% because again, the animal protein independent of the whole fat versus carbs is really not good for you. And so, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of protective substances and fruits and vegetables that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease and anti-aging properties. And so when you switch to a whole foods plant-based diet, you're getting the benefits of going on a Atkins paleo keto diet in terms of your, it's low in fat and low in refined carbs, but you're getting, but it's high in the things that are protective. So you're really getting a double benefit. You're not getting the things that cause you to get sick and you're getting hundreds of thousands of other substances that are protective. And by the way, you're going to get all the protein you need. You know, rice and beans are a complete protein. It's the same quality of protein that you find in an egg or in meat, but you're not getting all the other stuff that can cause problems. So aside from rice and beans, uh, which is a protein, sor you know, protein source, what other protein sources would you say are sufficient? Well, most foods have proteins. The question is, do they have complete proteins? Okay. Okay. And proteins, your body can make most of the amino... And proteins are just collections of amino acids, like words are collections of letters. And the amino acids can be you know, lots of different combinations, but your body can make all but a few of them. And in generally, most foods have all but one. So rice has all but one, and beans have all but another. You put them together, you get a complete protein. And certain soy products, uh, I know soy has gotten a bad rap from some people, but it's actually, I think, in, in the quantities that reasonable quantities can actually be uh, beneficial. But most people actually get too much protein in this country. And when you get too much protein, it's a strain on your kidneys and your liver and some other things like that. You can also, if you really are insistent on adding uh, protein supplements, you can get vegan plant-based protein powders as well, but most people don't really need those. If you're not losing weight, I mean, if you want to be stable in your weight and you're not losing weight uh, and you're getting enough calories, it's very hard not to get enough protein in this country. Right. And I, 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 that's interesting. And I think uh, for, for, from my experience, when I didn't know animal protein, I tried it for six months and it was just, you know, vegetables and fruit. And also I noticed my body composition completely changed as well. And a lot of my muscles shrunk in size and uh, I remember not feeling so great in the way I was, you know, holding myself. I think I lost a lot of muscle mass doing that. And I'm wondering if it was because I didn't do it right or... When you're eating a plant-based protein? Yeah, was I was doing a plant-based plant diet for like six months, just, you know, juices and smoothies. And Well, if you're getting juices and smoothies, you're not... I mean, you need, you need to get some extra... There's not much protein in, in juices and smoothies. So it right. may be you really weren't getting enough protein if that's really primarily what you were eating. But what's, enough, what's enough protein? How much? Well, day? It depends. You know, I mean, 50 or 60 grams a day is plenty for most people. Um, yeah. And so, it, you know, I don't know what you're eating before, but you want to make sure you're getting, especially some legumes, which are rich in protein and soy products, you know, and things of that sort. You're going to get all the protein that you need. And there's a wonderful film coming out in the next couple of months called Game Changers. You know, James Cameron 
became a vegan uh, who did all those wonderful, you know, Terminator and Avatar and Titanic movies. And he became a vegan about nine years ago, he and his wife, Susie, initially for environmental reasons, because more global warming is caused by eating livestock than all forms of transportation combined. And by the way, it takes 10 to 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. So if, if everyone were eating a plant-based diet, there's more than enough food. No one need to go hungry. We can reduce global warming. But because most people are concerned about protein, he did a film with Luis Cajoyos that um, looks at elite athletes who went on a plant-based diet. And these are mixed martial artists who became national champions and heavyweight boxers and NFL players and Olympic athletes who became medalists when they went to a and bodybuilders like Arnold Schwarzenegger and others who went to a plant-based diet and elevated their game uh, and their performance by eating that way. And there's, a one, there's one great scene in there, which I talk about in my new book, the Undo It book, where he's got three athletes in their 20s and mid-20s, and he feeds them a meat-based meal. Uh, and it's high quality. It's grass-fed beef and organic chicken, et cetera, just one meal. And then at night, there's a leading urologist, Aaron Spitz, who measured the frequency and hardness of erections they had that night. And then they did the same thing the following night with one single plant-based meal and did the same thing. And they found that all three athletes had three to 500% more frequent erections and 10 to 15% harder erections after the plant-based meal than after the meat-based meal. Apparently, the, the film crew became <laughs> vegetarian after shooting that scene. But wow, it should, that, will, that will definitely motivate people. It does, you know, because it takes it out of the realm of, you're, you know, you're not right. or whatever. Makes it um, real. It makes it real for the moment, right? And it's not just your, your sexual organs that are getting more blood flow. Your brain gets more blood. You think more clearly. You have more energy. You can actually grow so many new brain neurons, your brain can get measurably bigger. Your skin gets more blood, you look younger, your heart gets more blood, and so on. And so the point I make in this new book is how dynamic these mechanisms are, how quickly you can feel better or worse when you make these lifestyle changes to the degree that you make them. And that's what makes them sustainable because then you start to say, oh, when I eat this and do that, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So maybe I'll do more of this and less than that. And what I gain is so much more than what I give up and how quickly that I feel better by doing that then that makes it sustainable. Not out of fear of dying, but out of joy of living. Yeah, I love that. Is there a safe way to go from eating animal protein to switching over to um, not? A safe way? Just a plant-based diet. I mean, do you, do you just switch it in a moment or? Well, there's two basic strategies that I found work. One is to do it gradually. I wrote a book years ago called The Spectrum, which was based on the more you change, the more you improve. So what matters most is your overall way of eating. You indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you failed or you're bad. As we talked about earlier, just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to meditate one day, do a little more the next and so on. The other approach is make big changes all at once. And then when you make big changes, you feel so much better so quickly. It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living. And you can really feel the difference. And so it really depends. Now, if you're trying to reverse a life-threatening condition, it's better to make big changes all at once. But otherwise, you know, what works best for you? Right. Well, that's really helpful. And I'm sure all the viewers are going to really enjoy this interview because you're dropping so much knowledge and easy ways to actually integrate these things into our lives, opposed to just being like, you know, mile high, out of reach, out of reach solution. So this is great. Thanks. Doc Dean, I'm so happy to have you on the, on the show today. And um, thanks Good. again for joining. Well, thank you. You're really a bright light in the darkness. And awareness is the first step in healing. So thanks for raising awareness and thanks for including me. Yeah, my pleasure. And by the way, if people want to know more about our work, uh, the book is Undo It, but the website, ornish.com, everything on there is free. There's lots of resources. I hope it's useful.
That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they can use some support, feel free to share this episode with them. And if you have a moment to rate and review, that really helps grow the show. Take care, be well, and feel full.